Well, we're continuing our studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading from verse 12 to the end of chapter 2. The Word of God. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven while the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I had surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless, for the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered, and days to come both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. 
This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor, over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Amen and thanks be to God for his holy word. Heavenly Father, as we now give our minds to your word. We acknowledge that this is not the most straightforward part of Scripture, and yet it is Scripture, and it has been preserved by men and women of faith and by your Holy Spirit down through the centuries so that today we can hear what it says and look to you to enable us to understand and put into practice what true wisdom really is, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the extravagance of the rich and famous is the stuff of headlines. According to his former management company, film star Johnny Depp's outgoings amount to $2 million dollars. A month. Heiress Paris Hilton built a luxury kennel for her dog, costing over $300,000. It has two stories, has a balcony, a crystal chandelier, and designer furniture. So not so much a kennel as a dog villa. To my mind, however, boxer Mike Tyson tops it all. He really did Spend, spend, spend on just about every luxury item you can imagine and not imagine three white Bengal taggers at $70,000 each, never mind the upkeep. So no wonder he ended up bankrupt. That, of course, is nothing new. The extravagance of the rich is nothing new. The Roman Emperor Caligula swam in a pool of gold And Cleopatra is said to have dissolved pearls in vinegar so that she could drink them. Perhaps our modern spendthrifts should bear in mind that Caligula was assassinated and Cleopatra took her own life. Well, it must be nice to have piles of money. Anyone who thinks that that is where happiness and meaning are to be found is going to be sorely disappointed. But of course, the author of Ecclesiastes could have told them all that. Last week, I introduced you to our teacher, Koholet in the Hebrew, our professor of philosophy. And we're looking to him for guidance in our journey through life. But rather than taking us by the hand, 
He wants to tell us about his journey first of all. And I am picturing him in the lecture theatre. And I can see him as he looks around at all those young, keen, eager faces before him. Every year he gives the same lecture to the fresh intake. They are there to learn the meaning of life. And they think that he is going to spoon-feed them all the answers. But that is not a spoon in his hand. It's a needle. And he's about to burst their balloon. Meaningless, meaningless, he declares. Everything is meaningless. Or as I said last week, I would prefer a breath. Just a breath. It's all just a breath. And what our teacher is about to do is he is going to explode every preconception these fresh-faced students have. They have been taught that hard work is the only way to get on in life. He is going to tell them that hard work is a mug scheme. They've been taught to prize wisdom, learning, understanding. Rather cruelly, he's going to point out the obvious, that the wise die just like fools. They've been taught to be careful with their money, to put away a nest egg for a rainy day. But, he says, there's no guarantees that you'll live long enough to enjoy your hard-earned savings. And there are no pockets in a shroud. So these students are in for a very bumpy ride. And, may I suggest, so are we. But, my friends, the ride is going somewhere. And very often, isn't it true that the most difficult journeys are the most rewarding. If you want to live your life according to platitudes, then Ecclesiastes is not for you. But if you are interested in exploring the meaning of life, of life as it really is, not as it ought to be, then I'm promising you a fascinating and rewarding journey. Now, I was saying last week that although Solomon is the traditional view of the author of Ecclesiastes, it is more likely that we have somebody putting themselves in Solomon's shoes. The style of Ecclesiastes is so different from the book of Proverbs, and, and so much of what we read in Ecclesiastes contradicts, certainly at face value anyway, contradicts what Proverbs says, that it's more likely that we have someone who is engaging with Solomon. Someone who wants to find out for himself if Solomon's wisdom really was wisdom. And he tries to imagine himself as Solomon, seeing life through Solomon's eyes. Now we know, for example, that Solomon was fascinated with the natural world. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon studied plant life and animal life. He was, if you like, a keen amateur scientist. And our teacher takes his cue from Solomon's life. And he's asking himself what it must have been like to have all the wealth and all the resources that Solomon had at his disposal. So he says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He's not going to take anything for granted. He isn't going to take anybody's word about anything. He is going to plunge himself into the ocean of human experience. It's as if he's saying to his students, you kids have been nowhere and you've done nothing. I've seen it all. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And what are his conclusions? Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. 
I have seen all the things that are done under, under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Or a breath. A chasing after the wind. And, and specifically, he reaches three conclusions about life. First of all, that life is futile. For all the experiments he conducted, his results were nil. He can tell us the results that the key to life does not lie in wisdom. It does not lie in pleasure. It does not lie in hard work. But he can't tell us where the key to life does lie. But then perhaps that is the answer. Reminds me of a story of Thomas Edison, the great American inventor who conducted 50,000 experiments, all of which failed before he invented the storage battery. And when someone commented on his lack of results, he replied, results? Why, I've gotten a lot of results. I know 50,000 things that don't work. That's what our teacher is saying. I can't tell you what does work, but I can tell you what doesn't work. The second conclusion is that life is twisted. And he encapsulates that in this neat two-liner in verse 15. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Life is like the Rubik's Cube. Just when you think you've solved the problem, one more twist and it's all messed up again. Your teacher, for all his erudition, cannot make sense of what he sees. Life's anomalies cannot be straightened out. Life's problems cannot be reduced into a neat system. Our politicians like to imagine that they can impose a one-size-fits-all solution to the nation's ills. So, allow the free market to reign, say some of them. Others say, impose tighter controls. But we who are voters... We know that in the long run, none of them have the solution. Our teacher's third conclusion is that life is cursed and it's all God's fault. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Those of you who have cats, do not look at them, stretch out on the couch next to the radiator, not a care in the world. Food, shelter, protection, lots of loving, and all at our expense. The burden of life falls not on cats, but on humanity. These are the conclusions that our teacher has reached after his extensive study of life under the sun. And what I want to do now then is to look and to examine how he came to these conclusions. What were those experiments that led him to such a negative conclusion? So he says in chapter 1, verses 16 through to 18, that his first port of call was wisdom. Surely the key to life is wisdom. Now that is what Solomon taught, isn't it? And it's very much in tune with modern thinking. Millions and millions of pounds are spent each year on research and development. Our government wants our scientists to be at the cutting edge of technology so that we will be in pole position when it comes to exploiting the knowledge that is gained from such research. A good education is essential if you're going to get on in this world. And still today we hear from every quarter that the solution to humanity's ills, education, education. If only we could educate people better, we would do away with all the problems, racism, teenage pregnancies, drug abuse. 
And our teacher is very broad-minded. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. says the same later on in chapter 2, verse 12. There's a very thin line between genius and insanity. Who's to say what is wisdom and what is madness? Some of the greatest poets and artists have been mad, yet their work reaches into the deepest recesses of our souls. Our teacher exposed himself to the sober sanity of conventional wisdom, and he threw himself into the anarchic wild world of absurdity. But his search ended in failure. The more you know, the less you know. The more you peer into the mystery, the more mysterious it becomes. The problem was not the lack of wisdom, but the presence of wisdom. He found wisdom. But rather than being that solid rock of sages, it was as insubstantial as a breath. (coughs) Wisdom can describe reality, but it cannot change reality. It can tell us what the problem is, but coming up with a workable solution is another matter altogether. I like the story of the end of term school report. If ignorance is bliss, your son is going to live a very happy life. More seriously, the poet T.S. Eliot, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. And our teacher would agree, chapter 1, verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. That was wisdom. So the next port of call for our teacher was pleasure, chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Now, pleasure is very much part and parcel of the human existence. We take pleasure in all sorts of things, don't we? A tasty meal, a thirst-quenching drink, music that stirs the soul, stimulating company. But is pleasure the key to what life is all about? Is pleasure something worth pursuing? This is what our teacher wanted to find out. He tried laughter, he says. If the meaning of life is not to be found in the serious path of wisdom, maybe it can be found down the comic road. Don't take life too seriously. Laughter is the best medicine. See the funny side of life. Isn't it interesting that some of our greatest comedians have been the most deeply unhappy people? Now I'm thinking about some people from the past. I'm thinking of, for example, Kenneth Williams. Frankie Howard, Peter Sellers, Tony Hancock, all deeply troubled men. Tony Hancock was before my time. (laughs) But apparently, at the height of his fame, nearly a third of the adult population of this country, the United Kingdom, tuned in every week to listen to Hancock's half hour. But in 1968, he committed suicide. Miserable and depressed. Laughter, says our teacher, is foolish. So then he turns, like so many before and after, to the pleasures of wine, alcohol, intoxication. There was a fad in the 1960s for taking LSD under the misapprehension that it made reality more real. I think the only good thing that came out of that was some psychedelic wallpaper. But our teacher didn't No, he knew that the answer 
doesn't lie in intoxication. He actually makes a wee comment in chapter 2, verse 3, his mind still guided him with wisdom. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, our teacher then tells us that he sets about some great projects. And, and I think that is a reference back to Solomon. Solomon built the first temple and he also built palaces and gardens and stables and fortresses. Now it's certainly true that people obtain a lot of pleasure from contributing to the public good. And our Victorian ancestors certainly left us with a magnificent legacy of public buildings. You can think of libraries and swimming pools and, and churches as well, of course. But here's my question. How do we know that, for example, Andrew Carnegie was a wonderful benefactor? How do we know that? Because every single library that he, he endowed bears his name. They're monuments to Andrew Carnegie. His life lives on in stone. But what happens when that building can no longer be maintained or when it has to be torn down or when the Carnegie Trust eventually runs out of money? Will Carnegie's name then endure forever? In whose name are these great projects undertaken? If they're for the glory of man, then that glory will soon fade. Somebody else will come along and will donate even more money and will build something even bigger and grander. So while it's undoubtedly true that our service to the community is valuable and worthwhile, that is not the key which will unlock the door to inner peace and tranquility. So then our teacher turns to amassing wealth, to acquiring as much as he could. And he tries to find pleasure in possessions, slaves, flocks, treasures. Isn't it amazing, my friends? Isn't it amazing? That still today, people think that their happiness lies in owning stuff. My word, the advertising industry would collapse if that were true. We just buy, we, we buy what we need, and well, that's enough. Whoever says that's enough? Nobody buys anything worse than they had before. We always go for something better. Came across this snippet from the Wall Street Journal. Now remember, the Wall Street Journal. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider of everything except happiness. From the Wall Street Journal, amazing. And while I'm not going to dwell on it, I do not want you to miss our teacher's venture into sensual and sexual pleasure. Verse 8, he talks about the acquiring of a harem, the delights of the heart of a man. And finally, he turns to good old-fashioned hard work. Here's the problem. People have too much time in their hands. Give them something to do, they'll settle down and they'll be satisfied. That is the practical solution. Isn't it true that so many of us take our identity from what we do rather than who we are? You know, you meet somebody for the first time and one of the first questions is, and what do you do? Well, our teacher is not taken in with the Protestant work ethic. If you hear the problem, when you die, you're going to have to leave whatever you have amassed to somebody else. And you cannot be sure that your heirs will look after their inheritance. And given that they didn't work for it in the first place, are they going to appreciate it? So we have wisdom, pleasure, intoxication, public works, possessions, sex, Hard work, 
That was some experiment, wasn't it? But our teacher has drawn a blank. He's drawn a blank in his search for meaning. And the result is unremitting depression. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And he goes on in verse 20, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Is there no way out of this dark tunnel? Well, of course there is. Of course there is. And the clue comes to us in those three words. We see them again in verse 20. Under the sun, under the sun, all his experiments have been conducted from the human perspective. He has left God out of the equation. So what about the view from above the sun, as it were? And he says to us in chapter 2, verse 24, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. God is the gracious provider of all things. Apart from God, we would have neither the basics nor life's simple delights. The God of grace has given us freedom to enjoy his daily gifts. What we are not free to do is to presume upon his grace. We're not free to predict our own future. Enjoy life as best as you can. Accept the Lord's will, he says. Accept the lot that he has given us. Verse 26. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Wisdom brings happiness only when we understand that it is God's gift to us and it's to be used not for our glory, but for his glory. And so we can take pleasure in all that is good and all that causes us to praise God. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. So thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for all his love. It's as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Take pleasure in such things. Take pleasure. These are the solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. The Lord Jesus once described himself as the one greater than Solomon. And he told us that there is a chasing, there is a yearning, which is not a chasing after the wind. The truly happy are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn over their sin, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are persecuted for his sake as they take up his cross and follow him. The meaning of life is not to be found in food or drink or in clothing, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, all these things, will be given to you as well. So the lecture is over. Our teacher has taken us around all the different options for finding meaning and fulfillment under the sun. 
And he has found them all wanting. And his message to us is this. There is a choice. There is a choice. We may choose to please God. And find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Seeing life as an incredible gift from God. And living it with humility and thankfulness. I'm not saying there won't be any disappointments ever. But knowing that God remains in control helps us to see even them, the disappointments, in a different light. That's one choice to make. The alternative choice is that of the unbeliever. Described in verse 26, the one that leaves God out of the picture. Take that road if you want. But I'm warning you, it leads, it's a blind alley. It's a blind alley. And all you're left with are your paltry projects, your emptiness, nothing else. Life is a chasing after the wind. And the question we all must ask ourselves then, what road am I on? What road am I on? Let's pray together. How foolish we are, Heavenly Father, when we assess life without you in the equation. And without you in the equation, life is indeed meaningless. A mere breath, just smoke, a vapour. But with you, O Lord, life is meaningful. With you, O Lord, there is purpose and there is eternal life. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.